Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Author to Author podcast. I am your host, Pamela R. Haynes, award-winning author of two books called Loving the Brothers and Loving the Sisters. I interview independently published and traditionally published authors from around the globe. The Author to Author podcast is available on 20 plus streaming platforms and six radio stations, namely East London Radio, Mixcloud, Pam Tango Radio, UK246.com, Chalk Hill Community Radio, LWR Talk Radio and the Sounds of My Life radio stations. The podcast is sponsored by Dalgetty Herbal Teas. Use the discount code A2AS6 for 10% off your next Dalgetty Tea order. In this week's episode, I interviewed Abby Osho and we talked about her book, Becoming Visible, a moving memoir. Let's jump into her episode now. See you on the other side. Welcome, welcome, welcome to you, Abby, to the Author to Author podcast. I'm so glad to finally have this interview with you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. And it's taken us a few date changes, but I knew we'd get there. And here we are. So I'm also really pleased to be here with you, Pamela. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, Abby, where in the world are you now? And where did you grow up? And in terms of your heritage, where are you from? Okay, so in the world right now, I'm in Bromley, so on the borders of Kent, and I actually grew up in Hastings, which was East Sussex, and I was there as a baby. We're going to talk more about that with my private foster parents. So that was kind of where I started, and then the journey, I guess, got me nearer and nearer and nearer to London, and um, I'm of Nigerian heritage. Right, okay. I'm sure when we were arranging this interview, though, you weren't in the UK. Where in the world were were you? (laughs) Yes, you're probably right. So um, I'm an avid solo traveller. And um, um, as you know, I create uh, retreats for black and brown women, you know, particularly in Africa. So I think I was in Rwanda. Yeah, I I was in Rwanda uh, for the second time because I've got a retreat out there in September. So I was just finishing off all the bits and pieces when we spoke. Yeah, God, it was that long ago. Time goes so quickly, Pamela. It does, it does. But um, I mean, I've I've seen you on social media and I've also took part in the book club with a twist and I got involved with them because they were reading your book. So, you know, that was an experience as well. I've never done a, a read along before. So, um, you know, I was glad to take part in all of that. So I feel as though I know a little bit about you, but tell us yeah. what's the attraction with Rwanda? Why in all the places in the world would you choose to have a retreat there? Last year, I, I held a 10 day retreat in Tanzania. And from Tanzania, I had three countries to go to. So when I left there, I went to Uganda. The next one was Rwanda. And then I went to Zimbabwe. And the whole plan around that was, Really, what I'd like to do is identify where I'd like to do my retreats in 23, 24 and 25. However, when I got to Rwanda, there was something, Pamela, there was like this energy, this pull, this connection that I just knew this year my retreat was going to be in Rwanda. And then I think when I started to meet the people, because part of the reason why I go and and plan all of my own retreats without the whole tour operator side, not that there's anything wrong with it, it's just not the way I do things. 
is when I was actually hearing their stories and understanding, you know, what happened in 19, 1994 in terms of the genocide and where they were now, 30 years later, absolutely incredible country. And I think what happens, Pamela, and people say this to me, they'll say to me, why did you choose Rwanda? Like loads of people were killed there. Because in their minds, nothing's moved from that time. And so I understand why they have that reaction. And so when I explain how the country is in Rwanda and how beautiful, so for instance, every Sunday morning in Rwanda between seven and 10, there are no cars on the road because they encourage people to come out with their children, with their families, to walk, to run, to just generally chat, sit down, have fun. Once a month, the whole country, everybody in the country comes out and cleans the country everywhere like you will never see somebody in Rwanda drop a piece of rubbish on the floor like it's just you just don't see it so in terms of its cleanliness in terms of being the safest country in Africa and just the way everything is structured it's just a really beautiful energy and what I loved about it Pamela was you know many of the women that I I, I spoke to you know they were victims of, of of genocide they'd lost many people in their families some all but they had this real energy about them you know like nothing is impossible for them and there's a real Ubuntu you know we are here we're together which there's a real Ubuntu energy where because so many people have lost I think their family they naturally come together as a country family if that makes sense very very community driven and so when I not just saw that I felt it in the way that they were treating me and I saw how you know they were making sure that they were not just rebuilding the country but when people came they got the best out of the country when when you came you really felt like in Rwanda, everywhere's a view. Like it's the most picturesque place. It really is. And they want you to love their country. So it for me, I think just being in there and being in the being in sort of the energy of the people and hearing their stories and hearing how they've bounced back in many ways and how because of I guess the shared trauma that they had as a nation, they've decided that whilst that's still there and they are still working through that that every day they get to live on this planet has to be a day that counts. And that's what I loved about it. That's so wonderful to hear. Hence, I asked the question because in my mind, I associate Rwanda, obviously, with what you, the things that you've um, mentioned, the detention centre that our government wants to send migrants and refugees to and so on. So you get a very narrow view of what Rwanda is like. So thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Can I just share something else with what you just mentioned there in terms of the the detention centre and the housing for, you know, the refugees? And the reason why I want to mention this, I think it's really, really important because it was also, I guess, before I went there, I would have thought the same because you hear the government saying you believe that's it. When I went and saw the houses and the apartments that these refugees are going to be living in, I thought it was a private housing, like, if you ever see them, Pamela, I kept saying, are you sure? Is this really where they're going to be living? These houses, these three bedroom semi and detached houses are incredible. There's a pharmacy. They have a shopping centre. They have schools all built within this rather large complex overlooking 25 acres of wetlands. And so I say that because I really want people to start to understand 
that just because something is put out there and said, until you actually go and experience it for yourself, don't always believe what's written down for you, you know? And the reason why I think this is also important is one of the things about Rwanda because of the situation, many Rwandese were refugees for many years. So they have a real, so many places in Africa, let me just add, they choose to go to Rwanda as a refugee if they are fleeing their country. They want to go there as the country of choice. One, because of the way they're treated and they get looked after. Two, you're able to run your business. You're able to work. You're able to give to your family. You're able to give back to the community and to that society. And so when you think about what we have here and what we have in many other European countries, that is not the space that they're in. And you know that and I know that. So it's very different when you go there and see it for yourself and hear it from the people, but actually see where they're going to be living. It is quite different. Just another. Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful to, you know, wonderful to hear that basically you have a country that can look after others who are also fleeing their country as well. We're supporting our own. So that's really good to hear. But describe for me, what is a perfect day in Rwanda for you? What does that look like? Okay, so perfect day in Rwanda would be waking up with a beautiful open viewpoint of the window and looking out over Lake Kivu, which is a huge lake which borders Rwanda. It's kind of between Rwanda, Uganda and Congo. When I say the word lake and you kind of think of the lakes in the UK, when you see this lake, it's like a sea, Pamela. But within that, it's got its own little islands. It's got its own little islands. And what was really interesting, I think, I'm just thinking about a day that I actually had, is when I was on the boat going around the island, I didn't know that cows could swim. Like, it just never dawned on me because <laughs> I've never seen a cow swimming. But there, where they actually have some cattle that are living on these little islands it's just this whole beautiful calm nature and surrounding it you've got the mountains yeah and at the very very back of the mountains and I didn't see that there are like the big mountains in Muzanzi which is where people go to obviously see the gorillas but it's so green and so rich and in the morning you've got the mist like you you can't see clearly you just see the mist sat on top of all of the hills and then as the kind of the morning the sunrise comes up the mist disappears and there you have Rwanda. So that's when I that's what I was waking up to. Then I'd just go and journal. And also, when you get into Lake Kivu, it's really warm. Like you kind of think, oh, it's going to be cold, it's going to be cold. But actually, it's really, really warm. And just being there in the calmness of the water, journaling, watching the fishermen on their simple canoes with their own kind of handmade fishing mods, just fish and then take the fish. And that day, if they're not taking them to market, the family's fed. For me, that was beautiful. Then coming back in the evening to do a bit of yoga, having some beautiful home-cooked food, that was a really nice day for me. Oh, it sounds idyllic and lush, the way that you've described it all as yeah. well. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank also, you thank you for donating a copy of your book. I have it here. It's called okay. Become Invisible, A Moving Memoir into the era of private fostering, black child, white family, invisible to the world. 
beautiful, beautiful cover. Can you say more about that? Who designed that for you? Yeah, so the cover, you've probably felt it. It's quite a soft feeling to the cover, soft like our skin. So I wanted it to have that feeling. And then the actual head of Africa, but in the head of Africa is a fingerprint. So when you look at the her wrap and the camera and underneath, you'll see these lines and they represent a fingerprint. So they, rec- they represent the uniqueness of us as a people. Every single one of us is individual. And we came with our own fingerprint. And with that fingerprint, we get to leave our own print in the world in terms of who it is we are and who we're becoming. So that's kind of what that represents for me. And I just thought that it was... It was really important for me to have a cover that when I felt it, it felt soft and brown and warm and really just the richness of who we are as a people and incorporated my journey of who I was becoming in terms of that. And then the Africa and the fingerprint really just came from wanting people to recognize that, you know, we are our own uniqueness and we are our own gift. And it's really about celebrating that, too. It truly is a beautiful cover and very tactile as well when you hold it. But tell us, Abby, why right now at this point in in your life, what inspired you to write? So I had the inspiration probably around eight years ago, if I'm honest. And I would share my story, not with everyone then. I probably really started sharing my story around 10 years ago. And when people were like, oh, Abby, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I would say, yeah, yeah, one day, one day, one day. And I think, well, I know now and back then I wasn't ready to write the book because I hadn't done the healing. I hadn't done the work. And to write something as openly and transparent and honest as I have, I had to do the work. I had to do the work. You know, it's very raw. And it was the decision of, do I write a book that's not going to tell my whole truth Or do I write a book that's going to tell my whole truth? And I knew that I had to get to a place because this book, whilst it's about my story, it's about 70,000 other people who would have had different stories, but would have had that experience. So I just knew that I wanted to get to a place where I could write it and really be open and explicit in the whole of the journey. And so That's why it took me some time. And even whilst I was writing the book, Pamela, I was there were things that I'd totally forgotten about. Like, you know, you you forget, you push down, might be a little and it suddenly came up again, you know, and I'd feel myself. My eyes would well up. The tears would come. And I would know that that was the release that I needed in that moment in order for me to continue writing the book. So that's why it's taken me a while to do it. And I also, you know, I think now where so many more people are, are are interested in hearing. We hear a lot about the incredible Windrush story, but we don't hear about this. This has been very much a hidden story. You, you may hear little bits here and there, but it's it's not publicised on the news. You know, it was never publicised on the news. And, and so I think that this has, you know, a deepness and a richness to it in that whilst Windrush was very much about the story, the narrative at the time was, you know, our forefathers came here primarily for economic purposes because we were asked to come for the jobs, for the work. Whereas this was always about the education. So in my research, the first African student to be in the in the UK was here in 1942. So 
we were here a very long time, but the message is different because it wasn't about economic migration. The message was more about coming for the studying and the education. And that was based on the 1st of October, Nigerian independence, when the then colonizers were leaving the country and wanting us to kind of, you know, run things in the way that they were running it previously. So all of that was part of a construct. All of that was, you know, let's get them trained in terms of these the, the schools and let's ensure that we have the people in place that we want in place because they would have been indoctrinated with the way that we do things. And in order for that to happen, we know then that we can still hold on to the resources, which is why they're coming to study in the first place. It was never about the betterment of us as a people. Yeah, it was about keeping that relationship going from afar so that those very, very valuable resources as is happening kept going, kept been taken out of the country and taken to the other places in Europe and around the world that have made these great cities the great cities that they are today. I mean, oh, absolutely. I know of at least two professionals that I have previously worked with who then disclosed to me that they were part of the private fostering arrangements at that time, men and women who are now in their 50s and so on. And there was still trauma outstanding from their experiences. Um, A colleague told me that her sister was injured at the hands of her foster parents, not really quite sure how this accident occurred and so on. There were some who were involved in fights with their biological parents because when the term of fostering was up, they didn't wanna give the children back. They had bonded with the children and so on. One of my favorite books to read is My Name Is Why by Lem Cisse. Um, His mother was forced to give him up. up, Um, And then adoption went wrong and then fostering went wrong. And more recently, people are feeling able to share what happened to them and to write their own books. Now, I don't want you to talk the whole story out because I want people to go and buy your book. But can you tell us... How did the fostering arrangement, as far as you are aware, occur? How was it all arranged and how did that come about? So as far as I'm aware, and it's still a little bit hazy, if I'm honest, because I never really had these conversations with my biological parents. But what I do know is that my my biological brother was already in Hastings and he was two years older than me. So when I went, there was already like a relationship and um my foster mum, she always probably had four or five of us, Nigerian children. She had three of her own children, which we'd have picked up in the book, which were older than us. That's how it came about. And I think a lot of it was very much word and mouth in terms of at that stage. But how it originally came about was the Nursery World magazine. And that was the first little article that was back put in the back of the Nursery World magazine. It was in 1955, West African baby wanting a, a white nanny. I'm going to slightly digress a little bit, but you'll understand why. So last year, I was part of um, a film called White Nanny, Black Child, a documentary that comes out on Channel 5 this year. It was shortlisted 
at Sheffield Doc Fest, which is the third largest documentary festival in the world. I didn't even know anything about this until last month. So we went to see it on the big screen at, in, in Sheffield last month. Because of my retreat experience, I was a facilitator, along with another brother called Michael, incredible uh, psychotherapist. And we had nine amazing people who were all now in their 50s, probably early 60s, who were all fostered from babies or small children. And it was them really sharing their, their stories about that whole experience. The documentary is about an hour and 90 minutes and we've just been graced, although I think it's nearly sold out. We only found out yesterday that there's a showing in Bloomsbury Theatre in London on the 27th of July at um, 6.30. So in you talking about more people are talking about it now, they are. And I think coming back to my scenario, I'm guessing that my parents thought everything would be okay because my older brother was there. And what I've gathered from my research is a bit like if you all live in a town together and you all go. So a lot of my parents' friends, they all came to the UK at the same time. It turned out many years later that cousins that I didn't know existed lived five miles away from us. We knew it much later in life because their parents came over to this country of our parents, but I, we didn't know that at the time. So once somebody found someone they felt they could trust to a degree, then you would find that there would be a flow of children coming through. So that's how the arrangement came about, but through word of mouth. And how long were you with your foster parents for and how frequently did you see your parents? I was with my foster parents from five weeks old. And I never went back to live with my biological parents. I was there. I was, yeah. I don't really remember seeing my biological parents. I remember seeing some of the other children's parents. We used to call it parents down the Saturday when they'd come down from Nigeria and, you know, they'd be dressed in all their Nigerian attire. I mean, I have vague memories of spending some time with my father, but that was kind of going to visit him at a later age in London. But other than that, Maybe one or two memories of when when my my mum, my father and my mother split up when I I was probably about seven. So I remember my mum coming with her then fiancé kind of new husband saying that she was going to be moving to Canada. And I remember thinking, okay, well, fine. Don't know you anyway. So, you know, no, no big one. And I just remember her giving me this pink strap watch with a gold face and just being mesmerised by the watch and just kind of being thankful for the gift. But um, if you're going, you're going, because I don't have a relationship with you. Not that I had those words at that age, but that was the feeling that I had back then. Yeah. So whereas many children were taken back to Nigeria, I wasn't one of those. And, you know, even that, and I've spoken over the years, probably over the last nine years, Pamela, where I've shared some of my foster story, small snippets on different platforms. People have come back to me and they've emailed me and said, oh my gosh, you were fostered, I was fostered, I've never told anybody, you know, because there's this guilt and this shame that comes with that. I would meet them and I would talk to them about my experience and they'd tell me about theirs. And so I got to kind of, I guess the sharing is also almost like an opening and, and giving a permission, like you can tell your story, it's up to you. But where does the guilt and shame come from? Because this was an arrangement that you had no control about. So where does guilt and shame come from? The guilt and shame really comes, I think, from when you say in this country that you've been in foster care or in care, there is a judgment. There's a judgment that you're other. Yeah, there's a there's a there's there's a guilt and a shame, I think, that surrounds that because 
the people that you're speaking with made an assumption that you were brought up by your black family. Now you've said that you were actually raised by a white family. Oh, there's an assumption and there's a there's a nuance of a judgment there. Does that make sense? So so in that experience, my chosen way, and I know for many others, was to not mention it at all. I understand because, and, and I should have understood, but I'm glad I asked the question anyway, because yeah, I'm sure absolutely. my listeners will want to know where that stems from. Um, I've worked in children's homes where there is stigma attached to children who are in care. So hence, they may not want to talk about it. But what was your placement overall? What was it like? And what was it like being raised within a white family? I mean, looking back now, obviously, at the time, I didn't know anything different. I would say that then, you know, these were white working class families and it was very racist, you know. So the everyday experiences, you'd walk down the road and coo nigger get, you know, that was black bitch. That was the language like all of the time. And so from a very young age, you you either build up a very strong exterior, even though all of those words stung or you were bullied. <laughs> so I built up the, the the really strong exterior. And I think there was always this feeling of being an outsider. Even though I had friends and my foster mum did the best that she could, it was a challenge because as soon as you left the home, you were looking at something different, you know, sitting on the bus and people wiping the seat. That was my earliest memory when I was four years old because of, you know, being dirty because I was coloured. So we're dirty and we bring the germs with us. And for and a four-year-old's mind, my mind then, you, there's no cognitive skill to differentiate between what's real and what's not. So you absorb that as the truth. So it was really, it was challenging a lot of the time, but I also had some beautiful memories as well. But you were on red alert a lot of the time you're on alert waiting for somebody to say something or if that person said or if you know if it was like we were slightly older if it was a, a national front march day because they had those in Hastings then don't leave your house unless you want to be beaten up so it was that it was growing with that so was there racism within the home I think there was what I would call blind racism in 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 terms of like for instance at that age the only program that we would see would be Tarzan and so our foster mum or our, our older foster brothers and sisters would just say things like oh you know where you come from is the jungle and that's what your people look like and you know Tarzan is the one that went to like civilize them and you know if we were ever if we misbehaved ourselves or we, we would always be the ones to go back to live in the jungle and they'd paint white marks on our face and we'd be out there with the tigers and the lions and and the monks so that was in the home but at that point at that time I didn't really kind of see that as racism per se but it was a form of it that was the kind of thing that was said in the home really what were your survival mechanisms and how did you cope with the challenges of being in that environment? I think a lot of the time back then I would shut down. I was quite extrovert in some ways because the talkative side of me, I always wanted to be accepted and liked and I wasn't always accepted and liked, but I still always wanted to be. So I think I would put on a bit of a bravado front because that kept me safe and kept me from being attacked or from or from being ridiculed even more particularly at school because my name was different and so I think I would just want to blend in as much as I possibly could 
but there was only ever so much that you could blend in. So, you know, so for instance, I'd have friends and they were, you know, white friends because I was one of the only black people in the school. And then, you know, if you fell out with your friend, then she would like say, oh, you know, you, oh God, yeah, you're a nignog, and she'd call you names. But then the next day she'd be knocking on your door saying, oh, you're coming out to play. And whilst the names hurt, I would just be glad that somebody was coming back and being my friend. And I think what that does, you, I, I buried a lot of the trauma. I swallowed it. I swallowed it. I never spoke about it because I always, I didn't want to upset people. So, yeah, I think those my coping mechanisms was to kind of smile as if it was all okay. And I'd be like, ah, it's okay. I don't mind. But really, I did. I'm glad that you moved on to to talk about, you know, some of the examples of what the trauma is like and having to swallow things um, down. Was there a point when you felt, right, actually, I cannot go on feeling this way? And what did you do about it? I think as I matured and I got older, I made a decision that I was carrying around, as I said, the guilt, the shame, the not telling people. I've been so masked up from such a young age that there was always this mask. People could get in so far and then it was like, bang, you're not getting in any further. But there comes a time when I decided I can't live like that anymore because it's almost like you're two people. So I would say, I think it was when, when I really started to open up about being fostered and doing all of the work was when I had decided that I wanted to find my birth mother it's written about it in the book, you know, the journey of finding my birth mother is quite extraordinary. But I did find her in Sierra Leone. And I think just having that and getting lots of questions answered, not all, because again, it's something that the children want to speak about, because we've had the experience, but the parents at that time were doing the best that they thought they were. So there's no, it's like, um, and we did that because what we thought we were seeing in Nigeria with the civil servants and all these wealthy white, we thought we were giving you the best opportunities of education. And, you know, therefore, so there's always kind of this, this, this mismatch around that. But I think it was when I met my mum that I kind of allowed myself to really start rediscovering who I, who, who I was. And I had some counselling around that because I kind of, need, there was so much to talk about, but I hadn't that I really wanted to get some help that was like outside of the family. So that was my decision. And that was really once it's kind of like, once you open up the floodgates, Pamela, like they're open, <laughs> you know, and the work began. Yeah. Well, this is it. Cause I've actually wrote that down because a lot of people say, you know, you need to do the work, you need to work, you need to do the work, but um, people don't know what, what the work is. So can you give us an idea of some of the activities? You've already mentioned counselling, but some of the um, steps that you took in terms of doing the work, what does that mean? So for me, it really meant, for me, I would, you know, I would journal a lot. I would write memories, things that I remembered, and I would sit with the memories. And sometimes those memories would make me cry. I started off with, a, uh, I brought a book, a big A4 book with lots of lines and it wasn't pretty. And I just started writing. I started writing all the memories and, you know, some of those memories are very painful and, and I would cry. It would have me in tears. But I was saying that tears are a wonderful way of cleansing, of releasing. And then I would 
I started tell, telling people little bits about my story, just bits, because if I went too far, I'd well up. And I always, I felt embarrassed if I was, you know, in front of all of these people that I didn't know, but I just started kind of sharing it. And I started looking more into Nigeria. I started finding, you know, doing more research about other foster children. I, I, I kind of, I decided that I wanted to know more about this and how it happened and where it came from. And in me doing that, it was like I reconnected back to myself. That 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 was my journey that really helped me. And I think in talking with other people and hearing, you know, their stories. And I remember the very first time I actually spoke about my story was probably about 10 years ago now. And it was like a Black History Month event. It was like I was crying every 10 minutes. Like I decided before I was going to do it, I was only going to talk about these bits. But even those bits were far more embedded in me emotionally than, than, than I actually gave credit to. What I decided was in doing the work and the work continues, I had always wanted to connect and reach out to as many I say Nigerian, but it was Ghanaian children as well. But primarily in my experience, I've met Nigerian children who are now adults who'd had that experience. And and just to start to share my story became, I think, very, very healing for me. Yes, I can imagine. So it's interesting that you talk about journaling because I've been encouraging some people that I'm mentoring around their work just to write it down. You don't need a posh laptop. You don't need posh, sophisticated software, a big old notebook and pen and just start writing your, you know, and you don't, that doesn't mean that you have to publish a book or a pamphlet or a blog. It's for your, you know, that information is to get it out of you, to get the story out of you and onto paper. And a lot of people have reported that they have felt it uh, been quite a cathartic exercise for them to do in terms of making those steps towards feeling whole again as well. So it's nice to hear you say that you did activities like that also. What also was powerful was sitting with the feelings because, you know, sitting with the memory of it can be almost as powerful as reliving, you know, what it is that you went through. So what were the challenges um, for you doing that kind of self-healing work? I mean, this was something that I'd learned about somatic healing and how we hold all of the memories, you know, in the cells. Um, So I do a lot of this work in my work now because it's very powerful. And I think there's a fear that there's a fear around going back to that place and re-experiencing what you don't want to re-experience. However, when it's in the body, when it's trapped in the cells of the body, the only way to release that, you know, through the breath and through the movement is just allowing yourself to to, to sit with it. What I was doing was I was also allowing myself to recognise it no longer had power over me. So there's a bit in the book, and I won't go into too much detail, but it's in there where I talk about my abuse and my sexual abuse that happened when I was in foster care. And I share that with you. And that was what took me so long to write the book. Did I really want to go there? Did I really want to have that? But I just know that the feedback I've that I've got in terms of talking about that and how many of us it has happened to that don't, I just think it was really important to do it. But I think sitting with that and working through that was probably the most challenging for me. However, when I was able to 
give myself permission that that no longer had a hold over me, that that didn't determine who I was, that people were not seeing me for that girl of, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old anymore, because those were the stories, those were the narratives that I was telling myself. It just really freed me to be me. And from a standpoint of, I guess, not just my own personal power, but knowing that I've been able to work through that when other people come into my field or come into my area. And this is not something that people share easily, but there is almost like a comfortness that they have with me because they've had a very similar or shared experience, but they've just never spoken about it. And even in the not speaking about it, Pamela, that trauma has an energy that sits within you. And that comes out in many other ways you know, in relationships with your children, you don't see it because you're living it every single day, but others see it. They just don't know what it is because you haven't actually told them. I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned about the trauma sitting in the cell and that that's, that's S-E-L-L, isn't it? How does that trauma manifest itself if it's left untreated? We will know about physical, you know, if you don't treat a broken arm or a broken leg. And we and we do a lot around mental health as well, you know, in terms of knowing that, you know, treating mental illness just the same as a physical illness. But something trauma being trapped in the cell is something quite profound. So I'd like to know how does that manifest itself if left untreated? It manifests itself in, in many different ways, I would say. When stagnant energy, when trauma is trapped, you know, inside a cell, depending on what the trauma is and where it's trapped. So for many people, that will that will end up in some kind of illness. And some of those illnesses are quite serious. Rheumatoid arthritis is 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 quite an example of trapped trauma different forms of cancer, because emotions, you know, emotions from the limbic system, they flow everywhere in the body, as you're aware. But when we don't deal with them, we think we're pushing them down, it's gone away, it's gone away, it hasn't gone away. It's there, it's festering, it's attacking other cells, they're mutating, but we can't see what's happening inside the body because we still have that old script and thought program running about what happened to us. So we're keeping that, energy alive in the cell we're keeping it alive in the cell and so for some people so many things fibromyalgia I mean there's there's many many different autoimmune diseases that I'm not saying don't go to the doctor for for treatment I did for many years I worked in the world of holistic health and that's another thing I do is I go and source all my own African oils from different places in Africa but the reason why I was doing that is because the red the yellow the orange pill is not always the answer It can be for many people, so I'm not saying not, but there's a deeper level. There's a deeper level of energy where it needs to move throughout the body to be released. And that can really only be done by doing that work, by vocalising, by breath work, by movement, by really kind of almost feeling the feelings again to the point where you kind of feel it leave the body, if that makes sense. Oh, wow, that's powerful. And and it leads us quite nicely on to your essential oils um, that you source and, and your business in terms of doing the retreat. So if you can tell us more about how that started and tell us, for example, your favourite essential oil to use. I have a few, but my favourite one, and I guess this is because of the memory that I have with this oil, is called Namibian myrrh. 
So myrrh on an emotional level is known as the oil of Mother Earth. And a lot of the work that I do on the retreats and outside, we're always working with the elements of nature. And naturally for us, this is all in our DNA anyway. So Namibian myrrh is um, it's a wonderful oil for women just in terms of connecting with your own spirituality. It's very good for like wound cleansing, um, womb healing. So when I went to Namibia to source this oil, and again, I went on my own, didn't know anybody apart from one person I'd met. And where I had to get it from was 10 hours away from where I was. So we drove from Windhoek up to Apu, which is the northern northern Namibia, hottest place in Africa I've ever been. I had my hair in like Cana at the time. I took my hat off and I remember the partings burning. I had to put my sun hat back on. It was intense heat, Pamela. However, got to the distillery and, you know, I, I, I saw how all of the oil was sourced very, very, very interesting. And then the next day I went to meet the Himba people. These are a semi-nomadic, so they still live off the land. They still live in their corrals with the cattle. There's probably only about 25,000. So we we drove right into the bush for this off-road and um, a, a, an amazing people. And so they were telling me because it's so hot there, they don't get to use water. Like all of the lakes and the rivers are dry and cracked. So they steam they have they, they use this red okra and they mix it with the Namibian myrrh and they steam their skin. I mean, it's beautiful, beautifully, beautiful, soft. So I spent some time with them and I said to them, OK, they taught me through the initiation process and how they utilize the oil, how they burn it, how they douse it, how many days they use it for the young woman. You know, she started her period. She's now kind of, you know, of those childbearing years. And I said to them, is there a name for Namibia? Is there a name for it in Ochahimba? And they said, yes, Omumbiri. So I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, remember who you are. I was like, wow. Even when I think about that now, and I just remember them saying, it was like I had come all that way for to hear that. You know, so when 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 women buy that oil from me and I explain to them and I just say, you know, this is about you remembering who you are. Like this is a really powerful oil. So that's my favorite oh that's beautiful what what a beautiful thing to travel that far just to meet yourself um i think is um absolutely beautiful and what did you say the name of the oil was so it's on my website um as namibian myrrh but it's actually also there it's called omumbiri o-m-u-m-b-r-i-r beautiful beautiful so you have a website. Do you want to say what it is now and perhaps tell women how to use that particular oil as well? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is www.soulmelanin.com. And you'll see all of the oils that I've sourced from all over Africa on that website. Um, you'll see my retreats that I've got coming up. You'll see my coaching, uh, mentoring. You'll you'll see everything that I do on there and the, the books there as well. And I generally say in terms of using the Omumbiri, it's wonderful to use. It's very earthy. So it's, it's beautiful to use in the diffuser. You can just take one drop, rub it together and just breathe it in. Another way that I use it, because I think it's a very, very powerful point, but I'd always say do a patch first test because these are essential oils. So you might want to mix it with a, a carrier oil, like your coconut oil or, you know, a black seed oil, something like that. I have many carrier oils, all African on my website. So I take a drop, a drop, and then I rub it in my belly button because your, your, your belly button is your life force. 
Yeah, it's the umbilical cord connection. It's how we continue to be who we are. So it's a very, very powerful place to to, to, to use the oil. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. And if people wanted to get hold of you, they could probably get hold of you on the website. But are you on social media as well? Yes, I am. So you can follow me on Instagram. If you're an Instagram person, it's Abby underscore Soul Melanin. Or if you're a Facebook person, I am Soul Melanin, Abby Osho. And on LinkedIn, I'm Abby Osho. And my email, if you wanted to reach out via email, because some people don't use any of those channels, it is abby at soulmelanin.com. Thank you. And if people wanted to get a copy of your book, Become Invisible, is that also on your website? Yeah. So Become Invisible is actually on my website. So yeah, please go ahead. You can get a copy. I will happily sign it for you and post it out to you. I always like to put a few little words and just put my energy into the book. So yeah, absolutely. So other than your retreats and your mentoring and so on, are you planning to write another book? (laughs) Pamela, Pamela, ask the best questions. (laughs) So there is another book that I would love to write and it would be about my it would be about my journey, my journey to all of the different African countries and, you know, who I've met and some of those challenges that I've had along the way, you know, getting on the wrong bus, going the wrong way for two hours, not speaking the language you know all of those things that can happen to you and about the sourcing of the oils and and why I source them and meeting those people and what it's doing to change their lives and yeah I definitely definitely think there's a there's another book in me do you see yourself living in Africa yeah I do I'm not sure where yet because I just love going to so many different places but I definitely do see myself yeah living in Africa and that might not be for the full year I might do a bit of like half 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 but my heart my heart's there for sure and do you you have a family as well so um I know you travel on your own but is there a plan to perhaps travel with your family yeah absolutely so we're kind of having that whole discussion about Africa and Nigeria and them coming out and just really kind of my husband travels a lot to Africa anyway so sometimes when he's in Africa and I'm in Africa we will fly and we will miss each other and we'll spend three or four days whatever together and like when he was in where was he South Africa I was in Zimbabwe so we he flew and you know we met and yeah so we we do that too we do that too that's wonderful abby we could probably talk for another hour so we'll have to have you back when you write your second book consider that an open invitation for you to come back but thank you so much for sharing your fascinating story in your book i'm sure that this book will enable the conversations to continue about private fostering a friend of mine anastasia was part of that film festival yeah yeah yeah, yeah, she, she has her own business in Stratford called um, Purely Natural. Yeah. So um, I've been there. And again, you know, she has never said anything. We've spoken about my books. We've spoken about some of the issues arising from my books as well, because one of my characters is a foster parent, believe it or not, who fosters a, a Nigerian baby oh. um, Yeah, from birth. Yeah, the same kind of story that you're telling me. And she has never said 
it. She's read the book. She's a fan of it and she's never mentioned it. So it's wonderful to hear that now she is sharing her story and enabled to or empowered to tell her story in such a powerful way as well. So I'm hoping that the film, you know, is shown nationally to give people the opportunity here to, I would certainly be one of the first in the queue to go in to go and see it. So congratulations on the film, on the film also. I wish it every, every success. And it's wonderful hearing these stories finally coming out, Um, you know, like the ones about barrel children, the children who were left behind when their children, their parents. um, Yeah, so all of these stories are now coming out and just shows how diverse our experiences are. And we're not monolithic. You can't just put us into Uh a... Uh, you know a pigeonhole we all have different experiences so thank you for starting us on this journey I'm looking forward to finishing the book off and I wish you every success in your ventures thank you so much it is competition time now and the competition question is at the time of our interview which African country was Abu visiting Was it A, Rwanda, B, Kenya, or C, Uganda? Contact me on Instagram at lovingtheauthor with the correct answer by this Friday for your chance to win a copy of her book, Become Invisible. Good luck. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.